Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, as promised, we have a bouquet of wilted flowers for you, namely the earliest Christological heresies. But actually, you may be wondering... Well, no, probably if you know anything about the Henlickies, you know that we still like the concept of heresy. We think it's very useful and very important. So let's make a distinction just right off the bat. We are not in favor of burning heretics at the stake or any other forms of violent punishment for people deemed to be outside of the norm. But we do think that the concept of heresy remains extremely important and even elucidating. So, Dad, tell us, where does the word heresy come from and why is it good for us to keep using even today in uh, the 21st? First century as a concept. Yeah, uh, the the Greek word that's translated almost, or almost transliterated into English as heresy literally means deviation to deviate, and so the question is deviate from what? And I think the New Testament has this uh, proposal that Jesus Christ is the author and pioneer of our faith. That's the letter to the Hebrews, that he calls us to discipleship, which means to follow him, that the message of God from Easter morn concerning the exaltation and vindication of the crucified Jesus charts out the, the, the trajectory of the gospel as it moves through the world. And Paul can actually call Peter to account, according to the letter to the Galatians, saying you're not walking true to the gospel. You're deviating. You're deviating from the gospel. So the concept of heresy um, uh, is really ingredient. I mean, it's, it's integral to the concept of gospel. A gospel, the good word, the good news from God, that is the uh, charter uh, of our salvation, uh, uh, puts us on a path uh, for discipleship in this life with the goal of resurrection to the life to come. That's a path through life. And it's dangerous, therefore, if one deviates, if one falls off the path. And so while there are many ethical ways or behavioral ways of deviating from the Christian life, heresy indicates a theological deviation, a misinterpretation of the gospel that is literally lethal in its consequences because it sends you down blind alleys or dead ends that don't lead to salvation but someplace else. Yeah, I think that's really important in the, the way you point out that it's integral to the concept of the gospel. So if there is anything good or true about the gospel, then by definition, there must be things that are not consistent with that gospel and therefore are bad. That's what we're trying to name here. I, I think because of both misuse in uh, church history and kind of popular depictions of, of Christianity, there's this fear that if you even allow the concept of heresy, then you immediately have to be condemning people to everlasting damnation or that you're excluding voices that need to be heard. I mean, those are, those are real dangers, but it doesn't, by definition, eliminate the concept of heresy. Yeah, I think that you can, of course, say to that that orthodoxy is uh, in, an intention, not an achievement, that uh, we should joyfully, freely want to intend orthodoxy, but we should rarely claim that we ourselves have achieved it. And even when we are disputing with deviations, we should make it clear that it's one theological sinner to another theological sinner explaining why you see this path that you're teaching, this way that you're marking out with your teaching as to be erroneous. So it's, we should be very reluctant to accuse anyone personally of being a heretic, that we should be very reticent about making such a grave charge. We who are uh, heirs of Martin Luther, who spent the last 25 years of his life condemned as a heretic and about to be arrested and burned at the stake at any moment, so far as he knew. So we hesitate to make the personal charge, you are a heretic. 
but we want to speak more objectively, this teaching deviates from the truth of the gospel, something like that. Yeah, or as, as a, um, another way of putting it, we don't want to accuse people of intending heresy. <laughs> they might unintentionally hold to something that is heretical, but to actually, I, I think there are a few cases where people who continue to claim the name of Christian actively desire to be teaching falsehood that leads people away from the gospel. And simply as a, a parallel, the word hamartia in Greek, you know, the for sin, it means missing the mark, or maybe it's the, the Hebrew original that it, it translates means missing the mark. So again, it's not like willful, malicious defiance of the creator of all for petty and incomprehensible reasons. You know, it means going off from where you should be going. So heresy, as you said, is the, the theological version of, of maybe what is more commonly defined ethically within the realm of sin. Okay, let's move on from there. That's a, that's a good opening gambit. Okay, so the way we thought we would go about doing this is uh, talking about the earliest Christological heresies, or I would say the earliest heresies full stop that Christianity encountered, which means, again, deviations from the right path of the gospel. And these are known as docetism and Gnosticism. But rather than give them to you in total isolation as definitions, what we'd like to do is walk you through the church's self-understanding on the way to why these are problem through the person of Ignatius of Antioch the bishop in Syria who lived probably from about the year uh, 100, 110, somewhere in there till his death in 135 or 140 as a, a fairly young man. Um, Dad, you wrote a really fantastic um, discussion of Ignatius as the um, as the heir, especially to Johannine, but to all the early New Testament literature in your book, Divine Complexity. So I'd like you to just kind of walk us on the path of Ignatius from uh, Syria to his execution in Rome, and on the way, show us the steps he takes to eliminate the heresies in order to uplift the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, um, of course, we all we know about Ignatius is from his the seven letters of his that have been preserved, and probably of those only the so-called short recensions. There appears to have been some expansion uh, in the transmission history of his documents. But in any case, we don't have a lot of uh, additional information, only what we can gather from cl closely studying the uh, seven epistles, letters of, um, of Ignatius, who was bishop in the city of Antioch in Syria. And we learn from his letters that he was arrested on account of the name. That's literally what he says, on account of the name. And that's kind of code language in early Christianity uh, for the situation in life in which he was arrested by the Roman magistrate and put on trial and uh, told to curse Jesus or to deny Jesus as the Christ or uh, to uh, offer an uh, incense or a sacrifice to the image of the emperor, something along those lines. In any case, uh, he was being persecuted and required to renounce to denounce the name of Jesus Christ. And this he refused to do. So accordingly, he's been condemned to death, and he's being transported overland through modern-day Turkey on his way to a voyage to the Colosseum in Rome, where he anticipates being thrown to the wild beasts and being devoured before the bloodthirsty, cheering crowd. That's the situation in life that... Uh, uh, is the backgrounds, what, what Ignatius writes. And Ignatius was picked upon in part because he was a leader, literally an overseer of the Christian community in the city of Antioch. Now, the word in the Greek language for an overseer, chief pastor, I suppose we could say roughly, uh, is bishop. Ignatius calls himself the bishop. And this office that he holds as a bishop, together with his supporting staff that he calls the deacons and the presbyters, the elders of the community, right? What you have to imagine is not anything like a contemporary church, but a series of house churches scattered throughout the city of Antioch. 
And of in that city, there is one Christian community. There's not a Methodist church on the corner and a Catholic church at church counter uh, uh, across the street and a Lutheran church down the road. There's one Christian community in Antioch. And he, as the leader or bishop of this community, has been singled out in order to intimidate the rest of the Christians from their superstition, as it seems in the eyes of the uh, Roman authorities. Now, so when we call him a bishop, uh, of course, we have to not uh, falsely retroject backwards any contemporary understanding of the term, but see it in its original situation in life. I'd just like to comment there that um, I, yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes to an online um, uh, edition of these letters that you can read, which I really encourage you to do. They're very beautiful and moving. And, you know, after the New Testament, some of the earliest New Testament literature or the earliest Christian literature we have, but it is very easy to get tripped up on the language of bishops, presbyters, deacons. It sounds very rigid, very hierarchical. I mean, as if all human things are not really hierarchical, but it is important not to, as you said, retroject the whole subsequent history. But at the same time, um, I think it's really important to see how early this kind of um, structure emerged in order to protect Christianity. You have to remember that when this story is being told, again, the leader of this one city has been singled out for execution. This is not the winners writing their history, as people are so often concerned today that all history is written by the winners. This is really a minority voice of a tiny persecuted minority. I came to understand, Dad, in a, a new way why what's often called early Catholicism emerged the way it did just in the past two years that I've been working as a pastor in Tokyo, because uh, I'm in you know what's often considered the largest metropolis in the world. The Christian community is extremely tiny. Um, it doesn't have anywhere near as bad a reputation as Christianity did in the in the early Roman Empire, but certainly no kind of the uh, the strength or numbers that you might expect. And what one of the functions it plays here, I've already seen, is that it is a welcoming place, a safe place for people who are kind of marginal. And when I was trying to imagine back in the early church, I thought, you know, what kind of people were buying into this story about a dead, crucified Jewish carpenter brought back to life and vindicated by God as the Lord of all. I mean, this story is so, so nutty on, on one level. You know, the the kind of people, and, and we have evidence of this, not only from the early church, but from mission stories around the world, that most of the time, it's the marginal people at the edges who, who are finally hearing a good word in a world that is hostile and indifferent to them. They're the first ones who come under the church, which is fabulous. The problem is, to keep a community functional when it's all full of marginal people is a real challenge. And that's why I'm sure you immediately had a very clear structure emerge to make sure, first of all, that the people were taken care of, but second of all, to make sure that it was the right kind of gospel nuttiness that was um, at the center of what the early churches were doing and not the, you know, genuinely damaged people coming together and their damage being the dominating character of the community. So I... I I personally would um, uh, have a new sort of sense of appreciation for why these earliest communities formed structurally the way they did and their extreme fragility, not only being the subject of uh, political persecution, but also just from the inside, what it must have meant, the amount of devotion and love and patience it must have taken to let all these huge um differentiated people, strata, ethnicities, languages, and let's say a, a mental and emotional competence all function together. Yeah, well said, Sarah. Very well said. You learn here something I think that's very important for contemporary Christians to start, especially of the Protestant traditions, to wrestle with. Uh, not only does Ignatius embrace the office of the bishop, but he but he understands the office of bishop to be the figure uh, and conduit of the community's unity. Unity with the bishop is the, media, the, the office that mediates the unity of the community. And furthermore, the unity of the community is, for Ignatius, part of the gospel, because the gospel always has a social dimension. The gospel is not just me and Jesus alone in the prayer closet. 
It might be me and Jesus alone in the prayer closet, but Jesus is going to bring me out of that prayer closet and put me into an assembly with others who have spent some time in the prayer closet. And that, and that, and that, you, and we're missing that now during this time of the pandemic so much. That fellowship of believers, Ignatius is constantly exhorting, maintain unity. Maintain unity with your bishop. Your bishop is the figure in whom you see the unity of the Christian community. So that means that the church is part of the gospel. It's not an accidental or optional add-on. Being church is what it means to be gospeled. Yeah, and it's striking that for Ignatius that 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 always also means being baptized and celebrating communion together. There's so many references there to the the one Eucharist that you celebrate together with the bishop. It, and of course, I mean, there's a certain sociologically strategic element to the the unity there. But at an even deeper level, like you said, the the community itself is an expression of the gospel, is part and parcel of it. You don't just get Jesus; you get all the people that Jesus has saved together, and that. And that when you come together for that communion, that is the expression of the the fullness that the gospel is bringing us toward. Yeah, and that's you know that's where Ignatius is so close to the Apostle Paul, as you were saying earlier. Marginal people, not many well born, not many wise, not many powerful. The refuse of the world, but God has chosen the refuse of the world to turn the world into garbage. You know, if I can paraphrase 1 Corinthians 1. Yeah. And now you alluded to the sacraments, baptism and Eucharist, which are also very important for Ignatius. And here's where the idea of orthodoxy really starts to get it some feet on the ground, really takes on some flesh. Um what you see throughout the letters of Ignatius are fragments uh, of early Christian creeds, and they're almost all identifiable as elements of the baptism liturgy. Now, if you think about this, if you think about this, that you can make a really profound connection. When I think about myself as a member of the gospel community, the ecclesia, the church, how was it? that I entered into this community? Answer, it was through the ritual and sacrament of baptism in which I put off the old garment of the old person, the old Adam, and I put on the new garment of Christ uh, through the symbolic death and resurrection in the waters, uh, which for Ignatius is not only symbolic, it's also a very real impartation of the life of the resurrection uh, to the person who has turned away from the world and turned to the coming reign of God. So again, like Paul, for Ignatius, baptism means I am crucified to the world and the world is crucified to me. And baptism, therefore, uh, articulates the origination of each individual Christian and the basis of their unity with other Christians in the community. And that's why the creed that's recited at baptism starts to emerge as the standard of orthodoxy. The Latin expression is regula fide, the rule of faith. And so you, we know that, for example, our familiar Apostles' Creed uh, descends from the old Roman uh, baptism uh, liturgy. It's the old Roman baptismal creed in which even today in the baptism ritual we say, do you believe in God the Father? And the candidate answers, I believe in God the Father Almighty, etc. Do you believe in God the Son? I believe in God the Son, etc. Holy Spirit, etc. Right? And so those that tripartite confession of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit uh, constitutes these fragments of, of creedal orthodoxy that appear everywhere in Ignatius's letters and emerge from the rite of baptism as the incipient or the inchoate uh, rule of faith.
I was so struck rereading these letters how pervasive the Trinitarian language is. I mean, we're a couple hundred years away from any conciliar definitions, but in terms of it, uh, his expression of the nature of God, the action of God, the experience of God, it is, it's already full-bloodedly Trinitarian. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they're all there doing their distinctive but unified acts. It's extraordinary. It is, uh, uh, is it really extraordinary? Is it simply the grammar of the gospel? Well, yes, I, I would say that, but but we're we're taught to think, uh, you know, even even the the orthodox friendly, let's say, are often taught to think that Trinitarianism is a later to emerge metaphysical reflection. But I think Ignatius so clearly defies that that misapprehension. It is so intrinsic to the, how the gospel is expressed right from agreed. the get go. Very much agreed. And we could say the same quickly about the the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. By the way, Ignatius calls it the Eucharist. Um, and he conceives of it. However, the later dispute between those in Christian history who regard the Eucharist as our offering something to God and the Genesio Lutheran position, no, it's God offering something to us. This antithesis or antinomy is absolutely foreign to Ignatius. He thinks what happens is that the Eucharist really is, I mean, more, if you can be more emphatic than Martin Luther, Ignatius is, it is the body of Christ. It is indeed the flesh of Jesus Christ. And it is given for us to eat because it is the, the famous phrase, the medicine of immortality. Uh, and by eating this bread and drinking this cup, we uh, have a, a foretaste, a down payment of the eternal life uh, that is to be given to our mortal bodies. As a result, we are united in receiving this body and blood of Christ in the one true and genuine thanksgiving, which is to become members of Jesus Christ, his earthly body, who participate not in his unique sacrifice for the sin of the world, but in his lifestyle of self-giving for others. And so Ignatius interprets all the Christian life as one big Eucharistic hallelujah thanksgiving to God through Jesus Christ that we've been delivered from the me, myself, and I, I lifestyle of Adam into the life for others through Jesus Christ. Well, that's great. So with that very beautiful depiction of what the early Christian community was aiming toward, the orthodoxy of the gospel that they desired, that sets us up really nicely now to talk about what therefore had to be rejected as false. And the the Eucharist points us exactly in that direction with its emphasis on the flesh of Christ. So I'm going to let you unfold for us what docetism was, but as the kind of transitional point, I just want to say it's also really important to remember how few people were literate, and how few even of the Jewish believers um, in the early community would have had access to what we now call the Old Testament scriptures. It's not like it was at the top of everybody's head to just recite off Isaiah 52 and 53 and know that that was talking about Jesus. And so another thing that's happening is that someone like Ignatius, as the bishop, overseer, or leader of the community, is he is the one who knows and like in his person is the, the embodied deposit of the faith. You actually, you could go look it up yourself in your Bible. There was no New Testament for sure then, and you didn't have access to an Old Testament. You know, there were no books or, or um, independent sources that you could verify things. So you were really, as a, an early Christian, dependent on your leader to be the person who told you and kept the whole community going in the right direction. And so that's why it becomes so important for Ignatius to continue to articulate that and then to write letters to the various communities that he passes by on his way to Rome in order to state out for them. So they have some, I think probably on some level, they have a written record of what he has embodied in his life as the overseer as the, of the community. Well, said, yeah. And that um, uh, that's a whole host of interesting issues that that's raised there, Sarah, by what you said. Uh, let me just indicate a couple that we'll have to pick up at some future point because we don't have time to discuss them thoroughly here. But you made a very important point. You couldn't walk into the uh, bookstore and buy a New Testament at this time in history. You couldn't, nor could you walk into a bookstore and buy an Old Testament. They didn't exist yet in that way that they were available. 
let alone the illiteracy of most people, right? So you are reliant upon authenticated office holders, overseers, who have the credentials of standing in relationship to their forebearers. And uh, Ignatius uh, frequently alludes to his debts to Paul and Peter, and his letters reveal a knowledge, I think, of the Gospel of John and the Johannine literature as well. So Ignatius is actively passing on what he's inherited from these earlier uh, uh, witnesses to the Christian faith before there's not uh, a consolidated canon of the New Testament. And we'll have to come back to that issue of canon and apostolic succession and all that stuff in some future podcast, maybe on Irenaeus, uh, who comes a century after, uh, or most of a century after Ignatius. But now the two Christological heresies. Um, uh, in passing, Ignatius refers to Judaizers. It's not a huge deal in his letter. It's there, and he makes some polemic against it. Uh, but it's really the equal and opposite error of Ebionitism, uh, Docetism, that, that riles him and animates him and that he polemicizes against. Now, briefly put, Ebionitism uh, is often thought to be a form of Jewish Christianity uh, that may be related to the hypothetical existence of the so-called Q document. Q is a scholarly hypothesis to explain the common material to Matthew and Luke uh, that is absent in Mark and John. Um, Familiar examples would be some of the parables, some of the um, especially the teachings of Jesus, like in, found in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew or the Sermon on the Plain in Luke. And this reconstruction, scholarly reconstruction of a no longer existent Q document is often attributed to disciples of Jesus um, who maintained a relationship to Jesus after his death uh, that was pretty much devoid of any reference to the cross and resurrection. So there's a kind of a relationship to Jesus as an inspired, maybe even quasi-divine or certainly highly inspired revealer of the will of God, according to the Q document, for example. So more like the relationship that John the Baptist's disciples would have had to him after his death. Exactly. Uh, But not mediated through the cross and resurrection uh, tradition, which for the canonical New Testament is the sine qua non, without which there's nothing. Uh, Every memory of Jesus Christ in the New Testament is mediated through the story of his death by crucifixion and his resurrection on the third day. And Ebionitism might be a form of Jewish Christianity uh, if we can call it that, because they didn't really believe that Jesus was the Christ in the in the rich sense um, of the of the New Testament, but that he was an inspired teacher like John the Baptist. And these were called, um, perhaps by Ignatius, the Judaizers. So are they not supposed to be the same kind of Judaizers that Paul criticizes in Galatians? Is this a different yeah. kind? Because it seems like in Galatians, it's it's imposing Jewish Mosaic law on believers in Jesus. But it doesn't seem like that is so heavily the issue that Ignatius is dealing with. Historically speaking, all this is very, very murky. Um, and, and it's very difficult to make a certain uh, judgments about it. What we know is that there was persisted through the second century a form of Jewish devotion to Jesus that was regarded as heretical both by rabbinic Judaism and by uh, early Catholic Christianity. And it emphasized Jesus as a moral teacher. It denied his divinity, his virgin birth, his death and resurrection as uh, integral to 
belief in Jesus Christ. So the way liberal Protestants regard Jesus today. Well, uh, now that's a rather bold <laughs> statement. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm being a little mean there. Okay. Yeah. What I what I saw is the most distinctive quality, uh, like where it comes out clearest for in Ignatius's letters is that they continue to worship on the Sabbath. And Ignatius emphasizes worship on Sunday, the first day of the week, because it's the day of the resurrection. And that seems to him directly connected to the issue of, first of all, the importance of the crucifixion and resurrection. But secondly, that it is because the resurrection points to the true flesh of Christ as being the saving thing. Yeah, absolutely right. That's hitting the nail on the head. Uh, Ebionitism does not need the cross and resurrection of Jesus to have a devotion to Jesus. Therefore, it is inclined to uh, maintain Jewish customs and traditions and still claim to be an authentic form of Christianity. And that's why it's regarded as a deviation. Uh, by early Catholic uh, Christianity. I think we can kind of leave it at there. It, it dies out after the end of the second century, disappears from history. We don't really know. Perhaps it survives in Islam, interestingly enough. I was wondering about that, yeah. There, there's some evidence that early, that Muhammad and the early Muslim um, Hadith writers were aware of forms of Ebionitism, and so that the the way that the Quran honors Jesus as a prophet, but not as a savior, as an inspired prophet, but not as the son of God, right? The way it, it even affirms the virgin birth of Jesus, but totally is silent on his death and resurrection. Maybe this reflects a form of Ebionitism that survived in the deserts of the Middle East until the 7th century. Well, that would be fascinating. Yep. The opposite error that really that really uh, uh, animates uh, Ignatius's docetism from the Greek word verb dokeo, which means to appear to seem, to appear to seem. And these are the people uh, who said that Jesus only appeared to be a flesh and blood human being. He was not really flesh and blood, or if he appeared as flesh and blood, that was only a, a robe or a garment that he temporarily donned. Uh, he did not, uh, it was not integral to his person to be um, flesh and blood. And um, here's an example of, of, of it from the letter to the Trillions. Ignatius writes, but if, as some that are without God, that is, the unbelieving, say that he only seemed to suffer, sarcastically parenthetical remark, they themselves only seeming to exist, close parenthesis, then why am I in bonds? Why do I long to be exposed to the wild beasts? Do I therefore die in vain? Am I not then guilty of falsehood against the cross of the Lord? Now, let me unpack that a little bit. There are those whom uh, Ignatius regards really as unbelievers. This deviation is so serious that they don't believe in the identity of Jesus Christ who came in the flesh. And they teach instead that he only seemed to suffer. Of course, this was always the big uh, objection. How unworthy of God, how undignified of God, not only to, to spend nine months in Mary's womb, how disgusting, not only to pass <laughs> through Mary's birth canal, ugh, how gross, Even worse. not only to nurse at Mary's breasts for God knows how long before he weaned, <laughs> not only to have hungered and thirst, but then to have died a shameful, ignominious death on a Roman stake. How unworthy of God. That's not salvation. That's damnation. That's what we want to escape from. So they deny the reality of Christ's physical existence and his suffering in the flesh, to which Ignatius, in chains, being transported to die in the Colosseum in Rome, 
uh, protests, then why am I in these chains? Do I only seem to be in chains? Do I only seem to be imprisoned? Do I only seem to be thrown to the wild beasts and, you know, torn to pieces? For Ignatius, our salvation depends on the identity, the divine self-identification with our mortal flesh accomplished in and through Jesus Christ so that we live in our mortal flesh now uh, to the glory of God. Uh, And that means that even in our suffering under persecution, uh, we are participating in true salvation. It's really striking. I mean, you know, as we've mentioned before, our interest in, in re-emphasizing bodiliness and that being taken up in, in ways in, in pietism and in, I think, more contemporary concerns stemming out of, um, you know, women's voices coming in or, or those of um, persecuted minorities more contemporary to us. Um, it's so amazing that, it's, as you say, for Ignatius, the salvation is of the mortal body. And therefore, he has this, um, you you could almost um, be a little alarmed by the intensity of his desire to die physically as Jesus died physically, that his salvation is not escape from all these bodily things that you listed through, but to be all the way to the extreme of what it means, even to the point of being torn by wild beasts. If I can uh, go on when he writes to the Romans... It's fascinating. His letter to the Romans is, please don't get me released. (laughs) Apparently, there is some effort underway on the part of the, you know, maybe slightly more powerful Roman Christian community to intercede on his behalf and ask for his release. And he's begging them, don't take away this opportunity for me. Don't, um, Don't take away this honor for me. I want to become gods. I want to be a true disciple. I want to run my race all the way to the end. He says, Pray, do not seek to confer any greater favor upon me than that I be sacrificed to God while the altar is still prepared. I mean, it's it's extraordinary. Suffer me to become food for the wild beasts through whose instrumentality it will be granted me to attain to God. I am the wheat of God. Let me be ground by the teeth of the wild beasts that I may be found the pure bread of Christ. Whew. Well, I think that that's a wild passage, and I think it needs a little interpretation. Well, go ahead. I'm just wowed by it, but you you bring it a little down to earth for us. <laughs> yeah, I think that transparently what's – well, I've argued. Let me put it this way. It's probably controversial because there's a there's – a, let me step back a step. There's a background here. Uh, does Ignatius have some kind of sick death wish? Does he, in some kind of deeply masochistic way, does he want to suffer and die? Is he getting his rocks off? Is he getting his jollies by being persecuted? And there, you know, there's some, there are some sick masochistic phenomena like this we know about, right? Is that what's going on here? I, I think probably not for a couple of reasons, because the early Catholic Church as you'll read in the almost contemporaneous account of the martyrdom of Polycarp, says from the very beginning that we advise you, no one should seek martyrdom. Right. You're allowed to flee if you legitimately can. Yeah, you can run away. But you're not supposed to seek out martyrdom. If you get caught, if you get arrested, if you're given no choice but to deny Christ, um, uh, or be condemned, then you have to be brave and confess Christ and bring the condemnation onto yourself and embrace that as the destiny that God wills for you, just like Jesus did in confessing uh, before the high priest in his trial, are you the son of the most high? I am. And bring, therefore bringing upon himself the condemnation of blasphemy and the sentence of death. That's the model. So if, if you're persecuted and attacked and you're put on trial, and we've already learned that in Syria, in Antioch, Ignatius was singled out for this way, persecuted and made the confession. Now, what's possibly going on in Rome is that the Roman Christians are trying to raise money 
to pay a bribe to get Ignatius released. It would definitely be bribery, not a not the fair grindings of justice that would change his fate. Yeah, yeah, it was common practice. You you redeem people in prison by paying a bribe, and on, you know Ignatius is a literate person. He's writing these incredibly sophisticated letters. They're being sent out ahead of his transport that's taking him to Rome. Perhaps for all we know, communication has gone on back and forth. Um, So Ignatius is anticipating his arrival in Rome. He's anticipating that the Roman Christians may try to rally to save him from death in the Colosseum. And I think another factor here is that undoubtedly in this extremely vivid imagery he has about his body being torn to pieces by the wild beasts and so forth, he's stealing himself. You can think psychologically, what is it, how does a person prepare themselves to be tortured? When you're, when you're facing torture as, as something that's going to be done to you, a lot of the early Christian disciplines of fasting and other bodily disciplines really originate in this situation of persecution, where you anticipate, how will I survive the torture of the persecutors? And I think that psychologically, maybe that partly explains some of Ignatius's very vivid language. Yeah, I think also in in the context where there is, um, other than, you know, to a certain extent among the Jewish community, there's no hope for life after death. I think he gets that this is his one chance to make the compelling public witness. Like, what on earth would compel someone to freely go, I mean, in chains, (laughs) but psychologically freely go to his death in a terrible way, unless he had such immense confidence that a reward awaited for him on the other side of it. I think he understands how great his the witness is at stake here and that it has to be intrinsically connected to his bodily non-survival. Well, that's, you know, that's, there's interesting corroboration of that, Sarah. And I'm having a memory slip. I'll have to look it up later. Uh, but there, we have the correspondence of a, of, a, of a Roman official in Asia Minor writing, I think, to Emperor Trajan, which would be, you know, roughly contemporaneous with uh, the time of Ignatius, talking about what to do with the Christians. And he he makes the comment full of scorn to the effect that these fools have persuaded themselves that they're going to live forever. Yeah, so I think that the witness to the faith and the resurrection of the body uh, is you know, he says, if you leave me alone, I am a word of God. Now, there's a powerful statement. If you don't try to bribe my way out, you just let me die in the Colosseum. In my death, I am a word of God. Now, I think this is really interesting because it talks about agency in a state of uh, actual passivity. Passivity, just like we talked about Perpetua and uh, felicitous uh, last year, that even though objectively they're being uh, treated with scorn and contempt and humiliated and uh, uh, publicly and shamed uh, uh, and so forth, nevertheless, in this situation of utter uh, passivity, uh, they assert a kind of, let me use the word, supernatural agency. They just look the torturers in the face and say, you can't touch me. Yeah, it's it's striking how he, he talks throughout these letters about beginning to be a disciple, that even though he is the the acknowledged leader of the entire Syrian community, nevertheless, he's only in the beginning stages. And he really uh, associates the, the full accomplishment of his discipleship with going to die. A little bit later in the letter to the Romans, he says, I am eager to die. My love has been crucified, and there is no fire in me desiring to be fed, but there is within me a water that liveth and speaketh, saying to me inwardly, come to the Father. Which uh, seems to be a very clear Johannine reference, as you, as you mentioned there. But all of this uh, bracing himself for the bodily torture is set in this um, remarkable tension with the intense hope um, and the sense of, of deathlessness even in the face of death. 
Right, so that martyrdom was seen as how you live the resurrection ahead of time. Embracing martyrdom in this courageous way, uh, when again, when it's imposed upon you, right, but embracing it in this way, you manifest the power of the resurrection already now when the uh, agents of death seem to have the upper hand. So let's get back to the to the uh, to the problem of the heresy of docetism. Here's a quotation again from Trillions, in which you can see how um, Ignatius is glossing a version of the early Christian baptismal creed. Stop your ears, therefore, he writes, when anyone speaks to you at variance with Jesus Christ, who was descended from David and was also of Mary, who was truly born and did eat and drink. He was truly persecuted under Pontius Pilate. He was truly crucified and truly died in the sight of beings in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. He was also truly raised from the dead, his father quickening him, even as after the same manner his father will also raise us up who believe in him by Christ Jesus, apart from whom we do not possess true life. So in that end quote, so you see in that passage how you've got an early variant on the second article of the creed. And the interesting gloss that Ignatius uh, adds to it is the Greek adverb alathinos, if I'm going my memory, alathinos, I think it is, which, which means this word is translated truly or verily. And Ignatius keeps inserting this adjective, or ad, is it an adverb? Truly died, yet yeah, it's an adverb. Inserting it, truly died, truly lived in the flesh, truly born of the Virgin Mary, uh, truly dead and buried, truly raised in the flesh, right? So that, that constant interjection of the word truly is obviously an anti-docetic accent. Uh, all this happened for our salvation in the flesh, or our salvation did not happen. Yeah, you see, I won't read it out, but you see the same themes very strongly in the letter to the Smyrnians. He, he goes through and he uses this truly died, truly suffered, truly raised up. And he really emphasizes um, that after the resurrection, Jesus was also flesh. And he talks about, you know, P um, going to Peter and, and saying, you know, touch me. I am not a spirit. I am I am I'm really alive. And concluding again with a statement similar to what we said before, if these things were done by our Lord only in appearance, then am I also only in appearance bound. So again, uh, drawing the connection right. there between the reality of Christ's flesh, suffering, death, resurrection, and the reality of the suffering martyr believer now. Right. And also in the letter to the Smyrnians is a remarkable passage about the Docetists. And here's where I think we could segue a little bit and make some connections with the gospel and letters of John. Uh, he says about the, the Docetists, uh, that they abstain from the Eucharist. They don't, they don't come to church for the Lord's Supper. And then he adds, and they have no love for the widow or the orphan and no care for the sick and the imprisoned. So look at the seamless path or connection Ignatius draws between the salvation that's communicated by the Eucharist and the orthopraxis of care for the widow, the orphan, the sick, the suffering, and the imprisoned. It all is connected by the theme of bodiliness, right? Salvation in the body of Jesus Christ means that the Christians become feeding on this food, a conduit of Christ's love for other bodies. And the docetists, by contrast, can be characterized or are characterized by Ignatius, as something like the spiritually strong people in 1 Corinthians. I think there's a, maybe even a genealogical relationship there that uh, they're just, you know, they're too spiritual for dealing with all these marginal people. They come to church <laughs> and it's a, it's a downer, man. I mean, these people are really messed <laughs> up and they 
require so much patience. And Man, I just want to get close to God without all these people getting in the way. When I was a pastor years ago, we had a member who every Sunday went to the infirmary, the old folks, county old folks home, and would bring a mentally challenged and disabled person uh, to church in a wheelchair. I remember that. And he was incontinent and also not very well in control of his mouth anymore, so sometimes he dribbled from the mouth. And he couldn't hold himself up erect, and his speech was not very intelligible. I remember sometimes he made kind of roaring noises during church, just kind of erupted out of him. But faithfully, he was brought to church every Sunday and took communion with us. And after some years, I had some new people visit the church, and I went to their home and invited them to join, join the congregation. And he said, the man said to me in all seriousness, he said, you know, let me just tell you one thing, Pastor. With that guy sitting in the aisle every Sunday, you know, you're just not going to ever attract a lot of people. It's a real turnoff. Hmm. Well, you can imagine that couple didn't end up, end up joining the church. No. But I thought, that, you know, this is exactly what Ignatius is pointing at, uh, that the salvation, the body needs salvation. There's a lot of Alfreds in this world, and we're yeah, all yeah. deeply connected with them if we would only recognize that our common humanity is most basically our common bodiliness, and that the Christian mm-hmm. faith is nothing if it is not faith in the redemption of our bodies, and the practice of the Christian faith is nothing if it's not caring for bodies. And the worship of the Christian God is nothing if it's not eating and drinking the body and blood of the Lord. Thank you, Amen. Ignatius of Antioch. <laughs> so, <laughs> Thank you, Ignatius. So, Thank you, Dad. So these these are these are the docetists, and they're a type, a religious type that we're all familiar with. They're the spiritually elite who uh, don't want to be weighed down by the woes and needs of others and just want to get close to God. Well, you get close to God by following Jesus, according to Ignatius, even through persecution, suffering, and death. Well, that's great. So why don't we wrap up then? Um, I, I, like I said, told you, I was really um, moved and intellectually convinced by your argument in divine complexity about how it's actually this martyrological center that helps um, is is the bridge from the apostolic era and into the formation of a New Testament canon. Because as you as you said, there's so many different ways, or as as Luther said, there are so many words of God. How do I know what is the word of God? And right. the very existence of Docetists, Ebionites, um, Gnosticism is emerging at this time means that there's lots of different directions you can take the basic data about Jesus and the even the the texts of the New Testament in, and then you know the rivals that emerged, you know, starting in the the second century rival texts about Jesus. So you you show how kind of the the needle of the canon is threaded through someone like Ignatius and his his martyrological witness to what we now call Orthodox Christianity. So just in our last few minutes, talk us through that process. Well, that deserves a whole nother podcast, Sarah. Let me try to be brief. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah, we've already identified that this development is really based upon the baptismal creed. Uh, The baptismal creed provided the rudiments of orthodoxy, the trifold confession of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, centered in the coming of the uh, Son of God in the flesh uh, from Mary and uh, from through Mary, and then death under Pontius Pilate and resurrection and glorification. And this was the rule of faith, which existed via gospel baptism before the New Testament ever existed just like the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, already existed before the New Testament ever existed, just as the tradition of the bishops, the overseers, uh, the personal conduits of the apostolic tradition existed before the New Testament. Now, of course, all of these institutions can also be corrupted. 
the sacraments can be corrupted, the office of the bishop can be corrupted. Uh, this is just a historical fact that this is how early Christianity developed. And if you carefully study the letters of Ignatius, you can detect allusions to a considerable amount of the literature that later becomes the New Testament. So we're not, of course, suggesting that the individual writings of the New Testament did not pre-exist Ignatius. Of course they did. But the point is they weren't assembled and unified as scripture. So you might have had a church founded by Peter that had Petrine traditions. You might have had a church founded by John that had Johannine traditions or Paul that had Pauline traditions. Let's just speak of the major figures. And then the question comes up, what do they have in common? What unifies them? Their vocabulary and even some of their conceptuality is quite at variance with each other. And uh, I'm building on the work of a Catholic uh, scholar named William Farmer, uh, who argued that what they have in common is a realistic depiction of the crucifixion of Jesus. This is what all the literature that comes into the New Testament as in common over against the alternatives. In the Ebionite literature, the crucifixion isn't even told. And in the Docetic literature, if it's told at all, it's usually told as a kind of joke, cosmic joke and deception. In one Docetist text, the invisible Jesus is standing to the side, bent over and laughing pointing at the crucified man on the cross as if to say, ha ha, you think you got me while well, you missed, right? Wow. And so, wow. And so what unites the literature that comes into the New Testament in all its theological variation with each, with each other's writings is a common testimony to the reality of the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh and his death by crucifixion as integral to the Christian message of salvation. You can't have a resurrection without first a death. But they're also saying you can't have salvation without a body. And that would not necessarily have been an appealing option at that time, or still today, but you know, in, in many ways that, that the goods on offer might not have competed well in the marketplace initially. And even less so when you see the, the leader being carted off to be thrown to the wild beasts. Absolutely. And how, many, how much of our religion really is nothing but an, a desire to escape from the challenges and difficulties of being body? A lot yeah. of religion, yeah. uh, you, you know, a lot of religion is uh, I'm but a stranger here. Heaven is my home. Earth is a desert drear. Heaven is my home. That's a terrible old hymn that we were taught as children. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking in, in, the ter in the context of the New Testament canon. So, you know, Luther famously disliked the epistle of James. One of the reasons is because it is very uh, scanty on references to Jesus. And I'm trying to remember if there's even an, an outright ref reference to his crucifixion. But what it does have clearly is the care for the widows, the orphans, the poor. And I wonder right. if one of the reasons it, it finally passed the litmus test is because of if it Ignatius is right, then logically speaking, the Christian, early Christians who were attentive to the least of these and the marginal uh, implicitly were also confessing the crucifixion, even if it didn't happen to turn up in the documents, you know, in so many words. Yeah, I think that's, that's I, I like that. I think that's right, Sarah. Okay, well, this has been really um, moving. I mean, that's why I, I really loved it when we did a Perpetuum Felicitas last year, and that was one of the reasons I was attracted to um, Ignatius here. So um, do you have any uh, final thoughts before we wrap up the episode? Well, I think, you know, uh, I don't want to pull the rug out from a lot of the stuff we said, but as Karl Barth once observed, suffering is a most unlovely thing. Uh, and so all of this embrace of suffering should never be interpreted in any kind of masochistic sense. Uh, it, on the contrary, uh, for the Christian faith, one is honored with a martyrdom. And I could even, in this sense, say the, the old man Luther once gloomily observed that he was not found worthy of martyrdom. 
Mm. Interesting thought, you know, that. Uh, yeah. So, you know, pray, we, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, save us from the time of trial and deliver us from the evil one. And that prayer is meant to be prayed in earnest. No one should want to be persecuted or suffered. I think what I'm drawn to this is, is like you said, the concept of stealing oneself, because I probably have very severe doubts that in the end, I would be willing to put my body on the line for Christ. And that is a, a hateful thought, but it seems to be what it finally comes down to is, is my, if you think of faith as embodied knowledge, then, then my faith would finally um, be truly embodied, as Ignatius said, if I trusted so much in the promise of the resurrection that I could steal myself to go happily to the beast. I just doubt that my faith is is at that level. So for me, yeah. it's not definitely not an attraction to masochism. I definitely, Dad, I'm a, like you, I'm a, a happy Slovak. I have absolutely no inclination towards <laughs> bodily suffering. <laughs> I want to eat, drink, and be merry as long as I can. But, you know, I, these these things, I think, are, like you said, the the reason for the early Christian practices of, of fasting or prayer or, you know, gathering with the, the marginal and the community is in order to build up truly the faith in order that the faith builds up the strength so that if the worst should happen or the best, whichever side you look at it, and that you are honored with the martyrdom, that you can truly be the witness to the hope that resides within you. To me, as a very comfortable 21st century person, I mean, even in the midst of a pandemic, I'm living in luxury conditions. Um, right. I, I fear for myself, but I hope in the Lord that I, I could be granted something like that. Yep. Yes, maybe that's where we should, we can move on. Yes. All right. Well, then it seems only fitting that we've already determined our next episode will be on the wrath of God. So stay tuned for more fun with the, the Himla Keys. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlikeywilson.com and paulhenlikey.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.